Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Your organization's terrible. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay, the show about the president who's been described as a mass of whoopee cushions and mashed potatoes inhabited by a chaos demon. I'm in your ears for the second time in just a few days, and I could not be more excited. And the reason is this. Lee Sales. Lee Sales is, without a doubt, one of the most respected journalists in the country, if not the world. She's won prizes. She's won Walkleys. She's written books. She's formidable on every level. One of the books she's written is a personal essay called On Doubt, and it explores the value of truth, scrutiny and accountability. She originally released it in 2009, but this year she's updated and re-released it. And the updated version includes critical ponderings on Donald Trump, a post-truth world and political instability. Is doubt incredibly important or is doubt the reason that we're in this mess? Lee has all the answers and also none of the answers and I invited her in to the Mamma Mia podcast studio to have a chat about it. Here's Lee. Now, killer opening question. I wrote my first opening question for you and then I realised it's not a question, it's a comment. (laughs) I'll take that as a comment. You can take it as a comment. So here it is. You ready? Yep. Lee, you wrote On Doubt in 2009 and you've updated it in 2017. You end the book by saying everything you worried about back then is a bigger problem now and you don't know how we can change it. Fitting for a book called On Doubt. <laughs> exactly, but yeah. there's no question in there. <laughs> Can you just talk <laughs> to that point? Just, you should have ended just with discuss. <laughs> we, we are in the middle of HSC season. Exactly. So, yeah, discuss. Discuss. Look, uh, the reality is I am pretty confounded by what I see going on at the moment because I am – sort of an old school journo who came through being taught to keep my own opinion out of my work, to try to let the facts speak for themselves, that the truth is important, that the truth will win out. And I've watched what's gone on, you know, when I first wrote this book in 2009, I was concerned about the rise of Fox News and so on. And then particularly in the past year when I've watched the rise of Donald Trump, I've just been so disturbed by what I've seen. And I can raise that I think this is a problem, but I feel like I don't have any answers. Well, imagine if someone had told you back then, in less than 10 years, Fox News will be president. I still actually find it hard to believe. I remember the night of the US election. I kept waking up in the middle of the night and it was almost like I was having a bad dream. I'd wake up and I'd literally think, 
Donald Trump is the President of the United States. And it's not um, his politics. I mean, I'm not a particularly political person. It's not the fact that he's a Republican. It's the fact that he's a narcissist and a liar. And I could not believe that somebody had gotten through and gotten into the sort of most respected office in the United States and that somebody of that character had managed to bluster his way through and that he'd been so exposed in the campaign for so many half-truths mm. and examples of poor character and, and pussy-grabbing. Hadn't seemed to count for a thing. It's funny what you said just then about I'm not a very political person and I want to ask about that because most people would go, what do you mean, Lee Sales? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> You're the most high-profile, most talented political interviewer in Australia, perhaps in history. <laughs> I think, you know, in the history of like the earth, the universe. Yeah. You know. Definitely. So how can you say <laughs> that you're not a political person? What do you mean by that? I mean that I myself don't feel that strongly about one side of politics or the other. So I admire people sometimes who are like that because I see their passion and I just think it is amazing to me. Like I remember many years ago when I used to be the New South Wales state political reporter, Bob Carr was the premier and he announced this environmental decision and the Greens leader, who was a guy called Ian Cohen, did a press conference. And I can't remember what it was, but whatever the decision was, Ian Cohen was nearly crying because he was so upset and he was saying this is going to be terrible for the forests or whatever the thing was. And I can't remember anything about it other than that I was just blown away by like how much Ian Cohen cared about this thing that I sort of thought was neither here nor there. Something about that stuck with me and I felt like, yeah, I'm not like that. And when I interview people who come on the show and they maintain their party line and their party discipline and one side says black and so they say white, I find that really hard to relate to. That's what I mean by I'm not political. Like I, I tend to be, I think, a bit of a natural contrarian. So when I lived in the United States, George W. Bush was the president. And so I think that sort of in reaction to that, I reckon I sort of moved a bit further to the left because I was a bit contrarian. But then when you know I live in Australia and Kevin Rudd's the prime minister and then Julia Gillard, then I think I moved further to the right for the, exactly the same reason. So... You know, I've voted all over the shop over my life. Um, I, I, you know, look at political issues and I change my mind and uh, sometimes I'm not sure what to think. I just don't feel strongly about any one side of politics. So I'm interested in politics, but I'd say that, you know, the reason I say I'm not a political person is because I don't feel strongly aligned with any one particular body. It's so funny when you say that because it never occurred to me that I didn't have to be passionate one way or the other. I suppose because I grew up with a mother who is very passionate, she would be the one who would be almost in tears about the environment or about whatever it was. And she dragged me to no nukes rallies and things like that. And she's, you know, a pretty passionate Labor supporter or she's pretty passionately left wing. So I guess I always grew up thinking that you had to feel strongly one way or the other. That you have to pick a side. That you have to pick a side. Right. And so much of what you write about is this idea of doubt. And you say... See, I'm not as good as you. I can't just look down and find my quote. <laughs> you say something that's really good. You quote Hendrik Hertzberg. I don't know who that is. But he says something interesting. And he says, a political ide- ideology is a very handy thing to have. It's a real time saver because it tells you what to think about things you know nothing about. Yeah, that quote stuck with me so much because, again, in my day job, I feel like I see that all the time where Labor says, you know, black. And so whoever the government person uh, is that I'm interviewing, they have to say white. And it doesn't matter what contortions of logic they have to take. They manage to somehow make it fit. 
that sort of thing I find transparently, I guess, political for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it fits with what Hendrik Hertzberg says where people just feel like they have to have this unblinking adherence to whatever the ideology is that they've signed up for. I mean, I've watched a lot of also the sort of conservative and, and right-wing columnists in Australia sort of bend over backwards to try to find ways to support Trump, even though, you know, lots of Republicans in the United States don't support Trump. And we've seen this week plenty of people come out to say, you know, he's a really damaging mm. President, So it's like you have to sort of engage in these contortions of logic to basically find a position that can just keep aligning you with your own tribe. Yes. I've seen people do that too. It's interesting that someone like Miranda Devine, who we both know and who is, a, I suppose, described as a conservative columnist, there's so much about Trump that would, knowing Miranda quite well, would be repugnant to her, his crassness, his sexism, his lack of truth, you know, his lack of integrity, all of those kinds of things. And yet she is kind of boxed into having to find a way to support him, even if it's kind of like we're united in our antipathy for the left. You know, the left does it as well. But Mm. also like feminism, I think, is another area where you see sort of powerful women on the right who will sort of take a stand against certain things to do with feminism because Mm. I think, not because they don't believe in if you just distilled feminism down to what it is, it's because they don't want to be associated with what they perceive as the left. Or they don't, they think, I don't want to be thought of as, you know, a hairy armpitted man hating, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's what they think of as, as being what feminism is. And so therefore they have to find a way, well, I don't want to be associated with those lefties who believe in feminism. Therefore, I have to take a stand, you know, against it. So we've never been more polarised, have we? And you write in the book about how the heroes of journalism used to be the voices of reason and cool authority. And now it's the opposite. The Mm. heroes and the best paid and the highest profile and the ones who generate the most traffic are the ones who are not the voices of reason or cool authority. Yeah, that's right. And it's because I think um, what's happened with media is, and you know, you would know this better than anyone, with the rise of the internet, um, basically the bottom has fallen out of mainstream media because advertising has dried up. There's no classified advertising anymore. That's all migrated online. So there's less money to spend on actual journalism, you know, going out and, and visiting somebody and interviewing them and writing a story. Less money for that. So what's tended to take the place of that is opinion because that's really easy. You don't really have to cheap. leave your desk. It's you don't really have cheap. to make any phone calls. Exactly. You don't have to have any contacts. You don't have to know anyone. You can just sort of bang it out. The more extreme your opinion or the more inflammatory it is, the more clicks you're likely to get and the more comments you're likely to attract. And that's good because then that translates into revenue. So people say like Andrew Bolt, who have opinions that make people either feel strongly engaged with him or strongly opposed to him. You know, you read Andrew Bolt, you feel like, oh, oh, that's outrageous. I have to comment. So you click, you comment, and then that actually increases the power and reach of Andrew Bolt. So that's why people people like that have become, you know, very powerful because they are very polarising and in this environment that works. I think the other thing I find really disturbing and I think it's one of the reasons now that we're more polarised than ever is because in days gone by when you used to have to buy a copy of the newspaper, I, if I was reading the newspaper, there'd be all sorts of stories that would come across my path that I wouldn't be interested in and I wouldn't normally seek out. But just by dint of the fact that they're in the paper, I might find myself reading a sports story. or mm, And you'd paid for the paper, so you'd want to get sort yeah, of value out yeah. of it. So you'd sort of skim across it and you'd see lots of different things. Whereas now, if I don't want to, I'm not very interested in sports, so I can switch off the TV news by the time it gets to that part. I, If I'm looking at, say, you know, the Australian online. I don't click on the sports section. So you're able to 
never have any exposure to things that aren't your core areas of interest. But also you can just choose to cherry pick and read things that also support your own theories about the world. So if you like Andrew Bolt's view of the world, you can choose to read Andrew Bolt and you can choose to read the New York Post um, and you can listen to Alan Jones on the radio and you never really have to expose yourself to anything else. Same with on your, if you're on the left, you can wake up and you can listen to Radio National and then you can read the Sydney Morning Herald and you can have a look at the New York Times. And again, you never need to expose yourself to anything on the right if you don't want to. You call it viewer cocooning or you use the term viewer cocooning to describe it. There was a lot of talk about us being in the bubble after the election when we were all so shocked in America that Hillary Clinton didn't win because we all thought she would. I mean, all the polls said she would as well. So, you know, I wanted to to ask you about this idea of polarisation and doubt. Is it that doubt is so uncomfortable for us that everybody is just looking for that certainty and looking for leaders that are more extreme? I think that the human brain is um, wired to like certainty. I've actually been researching this for another book I'm working on at the moment. So we have, um, basically, if you have a feeling of certainty or stability, your brain releases dopamine, which is a hormone that make, or, a, or a chemical that makes you feel relaxed, comfortable. So that's why babies like routine. Yep. And I like routine. It helps with my anxiety. Same, yep. And it's because um, if you go back, it's sort of evolutionary biology. If you go back to our ancestors, things that were unpredictable or uncertain were threats to their existence. So you needed to be able to, you know, make decisions, for example, based on previous things you'd seen. So if a fire gets out of control, that's going to wipe out the whole tribe. Therefore, we have to do X, Y, Z with fire. So you like sort of predictability, routine, stability, certainty. And the brain has actually evolved in an evolutionary sense generally to prefer those things. Some people need it more than others. Everyone's got like a variation. So if you have OCD, for example, that's an extreme need to have predictability and certainty and control. Some people are more, you know, risk-taking and so they need less of it. But generally the human brain is predisposed to like certainty. We like to have a sense that, you know, our leaders are in control and that if there's a crisis, you know, things are going to be managed well and that we're going to know, you know, that everything's going to be okay. That's how we like to think. So with the, you know, election of Trump over Hillary Clinton, I think that one of the reasons that that sort of rattled everyone is because, as you say, it didn't seem to fit the predictable patterns that we've seen in the past. Mm. So in the past, you would have seen a political candidate is caught on tape saying he grabs women by the pussy. And that would have rendered you unelectable. You would not yeah. have been able to win the I election. Mean, there, there were 50 things that happened in that election campaign that should have... It should have completely yeah. derailed him. And so that, I think, is why we all found it so difficult to adjust to because, well, hang on, that's violated everything we've understood previously about how, how the system works. That's why we feel so unsafe. Yeah. And so then you feel rattled and unstable and your brain, it's a, it's an unpleasant feeling. So mm. it, it releases, you know, chemicals and feelings that you don't like. I think too... But for the people who did vote for him, what was it about his unpredictability? And and they say that's what they love. They call it authenticity, being himself, not being like the other politicians, which presumably has become shorthand for being capable and competent and being intelligent. (laughs) What part of certainty did he offer? The general view is that people were so fed up with the system and with business as usual, and you know nothing says business as usual like the Clintons, um, that they were willing to sort of basically do anything to disrupt the system. So yes, he's bombastic, he's a narcissist, he's a liar, he's all of that stuff, but he's not business as usual, and so we just want to upend the system. So that's the general theory. Does that also explain the rise of Bernie when he yeah, should have exactly. not gotten nearly as far as exactly? He had. It's the same thing, and, and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK as well, and also here Hanson and Bernard 
party and the fact that now the primary vote for the minor parties and independents is about 25%. So it's the same sentiment that people don't like the mainstream offering their disillusioned with it. But I think with Trump, the thing that I found surprising was when I was the US correspondent for the ABC, it was um, I did the 2004 election, which was Bush versus John Kerry, which at the time, of course, I thought, oh, this is so exciting. I'm doing a presidential election. And then ever since, I'm like, wow, that was the most boring one in about three generations. When you said that, I was like, who? I, I don't know. barely even remember that election. The, one, the, the next one was the amazing, you know, Obama v. Hillary and then McCain oh, picking Palin. Palin. That was amazing. So you got the dud. Oh, completely. I thought it was great at the time. Now I look back and go, oh, God, I was robbed. It, you know, it wasn't even Clinton versus Bush. But even that in itself, it's interesting how it's become more and more theatrical. Yeah. What does that say? Well, geez, you know, I don't know that we're turning into that reality TV is becoming reality, maybe. I don't know. But in that election campaign, I remember I travelled to lots of different places and I'd be doing stories about the American economy and how the arse was falling out of manufacturing. So you'd go to towns that had once been really prosperous, but the people had lost their jobs and unemployment was really high and the main street would be sort of looking like a trash heap and people would feel worried that their kids were going to have, you know, a less good life than what they had, that the American dream was done. And so when, you know, now it's so that was 2004 so we've had last year's election so it's 12 years on um i understood watching the election that yes all of those things that i saw the seeds of in 2004 would be just so much worse now but i thought hillary clinton would win and the simple reason was i thought that there'd be disillusionment but i thought that there was no way people could put somebody like donald trump in the highest office in the land because americans have such reverence for the mm. office of the presidency mm. regardless of the person who's in it and the person who's in it generally is expected to embody a sense of dignity a sense of american superiority american exceptionalism you know all of that sort of great stuff that we associate with america they should embody you know the best of america and trump just so patiently i thought mm. breached so many qualities that i find you know generally in Americans. You know, they're so polite. Yeah. Um, all these sorts Respect of Respect for the military. They have extraordinary reverence for the military. Absolutely. And so this guy, I just thought... Yeah, they're unhappy with the system and, you know, Hillary's a bit of a flawed candidate, but I can't see that they're going to put this clown in. And so that was why I was so shocked to see. Mm. I thought, oh, well, clearly having not been reporting there for 12 years, I've underestimated the degree of anger that's out there. Did you see it coming? Because our friend Caroline Overington said, I think he's going to win. And I kept saying, no, he's not. That No, he's not. And she'd been over there and she'd talked to some cab drivers and whatever. She'd been over there with one of her kids on holiday. And she said, I think he's going to win. See, this is why reporting is so much more important than opinion, because you get such a different sense of things when you mm. actually go somewhere. So say, for example, Obama, like most people that I know in Australia think Barack Obama looked like a good president. If you go to America, people were sick and tired of Obama. They thought he was awful by the end of it. You know, people have a much different sort of, not everyone, but, you know, a fair whack of people. Um, there's a much different sense to things when you're actually on the ground in a place. So with Trump, I hadn't been, I haven't been to the US since. 2014. So I still thought, as I said, for the reasons I just articulated that Hillary Clinton would win. But a friend of mine who lives in Denver, who's Australian, who's married to an American woman, said to me um, on election night, oh my God, you called it in July. You said, I think he might win. But it was more like I just said, I don't think you can rule out the possibility, but I certainly didn't think he would win. I just thought after Brexit, mm, all bets are off. Mm. But on election day, I remember I was watching it. I was watching the New York Times um, oh. little needly thing. I've got PTSD thinking about that needle. <laughs> <laughs> 
Florida was coming in and I remember thinking, because I knew Florida well because it's always so pivotal and I'd done a lot of reporting there and I was looking at the various counties and booths and stuff that were coming in and thinking, mm, that's weird. And then I thought, oh, no, no, that Miami's not even in yet. Like, it's... Fine, it's fine. And then that kept going and then Pennsylvania and that needle on the New York Times things was going more and more and more. I just could not believe it. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Okay, riddle me this, right? <laughs> Do you ever start your questions with riddle me this, Mr. Prime Minister? <laughs> no, but I might now that you said it. It's a good one. Riddle me this, Julie Bishop. So on one hand... Doubt's uncomfortable and we don't want doubt. We're in our bubbles and we're viewer cocooning and it's safe and we want people to be absolute. At the same time, and many of those same people are casting doubt on facts like immunisation, like climate change, like basic science. Yeah. How do you reconcile those two things? I can't. And I guess it's all part of what I view as the erosion of the importance of the truth Again, back when I was in Washington, there was this magazine profile that was written of George W. Bush. Um, it was in New York magazine by a journalist called Rum Suskind. And it had this quote in it that at the time just everyone's jaws dropped and were just like, I cannot believe someone said that. It was an unnamed senior official in the Bush administration, which wasn't revealed in the article, but it subsequently was revealed to be Carl Rove, who was Bush's chief of staff. And he said to Ron Suskind, um, you know, you guys, you study what you think is reality. And I'm telling you that we actually now create our own realities. And while you're studying those realities, we're away and we're creating more realities and you'll keep studying them and we'll keep building them and you know that's that's how things work now it was that was the gist of it and at the time everyone was like oh my god that just sounds so Machiavellian and unbelievable but now when you look at it in the context of what happens today it looks so unbelievably prescient because that is what Donald Trump does that is what climate deniers anti-vaxxers all these people do they attempt to present a version of reality that they find palatable it doesn't matter if it doesn't measure up to the facts. This is the thing I find disturbing and that I don't have any answers to. You think Trump says something, for example, like my inauguration was the most attended inauguration in American history. It is just demonstrably, provably untrue. You just look at a photo and say that it's untrue. And yet that makes no impact. It doesn't seem to have any effect. And that's a minor example. I mean, there's plenty of major um, mm. examples as well. And so, you know, I remember again when I was a young reporter, if something was in dispute and you went to a scientist, that was considered to be yeah. the final word if you had a scientist explaining, like someone who was actually an expert in a field. Whereas now, you know, you get a scientist and people sort of criticise and say, oh, well, they, you know, they're politicised, they're exaggerating it, blah, 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 blah. Um, that I find an incredibly disturbing development, this idea that, well, you know, there is no objective objective truth. If I say in my job attempt to present the facts during an interview, often a minister will say, well, that's your opinion, Lee. No, that's not my opinion. I just quoted the Productivity Commission. Yeah. You know, like it's unbelievable. It's like Kellyanne Conway with alternative facts. You're saying it's a falsehood and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave 
alternative facts to that. What's terrifying is that that seems to be the world we're living in now where Trump can just say stuff, Fox News back him up, and somehow that does become the truth. I know. And I don't know how those journos live with themselves, the ones who are the apologists and the, mm. um, and you know, journos on the left do it as well, um, where it's just like we have to skew the facts basically to suit our narrative. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, as a as a journalist, your whole job is to, not meant to be backing in any particular political candidate or party mm. or business or whatever. Your job is to serve the public and give them the best information that you can so that they can make up their own minds. So the idea that Trump says something and, you know, Fox News or the evening lineup on Sky News, you know, has to skew it to fit a certain narrative, I find that it just shows a complete lack of integrity and... But it's not news, it's propaganda, essentially. Totally. I mean, Fox News is propaganda. It's not journalism no. either. Like, you know, that sort of... The stuff that people like Andrew Bolt do is not journalism. Do you think he'd call it journalism? I don't know if he'd call himself a journalist, but he's not. <laughs> but opinion isn't journalism. Opinion's not journalism. I mean, there's a sort of pedantic argument you can have mm. about analysis and opinion. So I think, you know, analysis is where you present, like, say, for example, my analysis is that Donald Trump is a liar and a narcissist. That sounds like opinion. It sounds like my opinion. Mm. But actually, I think that it's demonstrably true because I can say to you, look at these tweets, look at this statement versus reality. And I think you could establish a pattern of clear untruths, which means he is mm. a liar. And you could establish a pattern of many instances of behaviour that would constitute narcissism. So when I say Donald Trump is a Mm. liar and a narcissist, I think that that's a piece of analysis based on fact. If I say, um, you know, I think Bill Shorten's hopeless, that's opinion. I'm sure I could cherry pick facts to back that up if I wanted to, but it's not demonstrably true. Mm. You know, Mm. like there'd be plenty of facts that would dispute that. Same with if I said, I think Bill Shorten's awesome. People who traffic in opinion all the time, that's not journalism. I think that there are very good journalists who write, you know, analysis and opinion pieces and I would say that they're still journalists who write Mm. analysis. So where does doubt come into fake news? And the lack of doubt, well, I guess that's it, the lack of doubt that's applied to anything that comes through your Facebook feed. Yeah, I I mean, I guess um, it's just that because the brain likes the certainty, you don't want to have to question what you believe too thoroughly. And so therefore... Particularly if it affirms your worldview. Yeah. And so sort of indulging doubt, um, like even say as it applies to religion, where you think, oh, I believe in God, God's looking after me, but that a terrible thing happens to you. You maybe don't want to examine too hard that because it's going to undermine your whole sort of thinking about how the world works. So it's uncomfortable sometimes to have to listen to someone who has a different opinion to you and think is there some merit in that view? Am I wrong? That's a fairly uncomfortable process to have to go through. And so I think sometimes it's easier to not do that. And so with our Facebook feeds, it's easy to curate them. So you're hearing only from friends who have like-minded views or you only subscribe to news organisations that tell you stuff that you're interested Mm. in. So you can sort of waft your way through life without being challenged that often and without having to doubt your own position really, you know, that often. You talk about two of the downsides of doubt. One is anxiety. It leads to increased anxiety. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, obviously I'm basing it on my own experience, but I think it can lead to overthinking stuff. Like I write, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about, um, you know, sports people are particularly prone to overthinking. Mm. Um, And so basically what happens is you just almost like jinx yourself because you overthink and then the thing that should be basically routine and normal, you can't do anymore because you've just overthought it too much. But it's the same with, you know, we talk about gut, relying on our gut. A lot of research has gone into like, what is gut when we say my gut is telling me to do this? It's basically your brain very, very quickly. It's called thin slicing 
going back through all of the similar experiences you've had in your life and then saying, you know, I like you, my gut says that you are trustworthy and likeable and a nice person. Why is that? Because there's something about you that's reminding me of people I've met in my past who I have found to be likeable mm, and trustworthy mm. and you fit that mould. And so, you know, it's again my brain looking for pattern recognition and certainty based on what I've known in the past. Where gut is unreliable and people sort of saying, yep, I'm just going to trust my gut, is if you're thrown into a circumstance where you don't really have any past experience. So George W. Bush, for example, in the aftermath of 9-11, <coughs> the lead up to Iraq war, when he was asked how are you making decisions about what to do, he'd say, I'm relying on my gut. Well, mate, you've never been the president before. There's never been a terrorist attack on this scale. You've never had to take a nation to war. Your gut would be like the least reliable thing you could possibly go on. You should be going from information and experts. Facts and data and experts. Yeah, absolutely. But, but that's the thing. We don't respect experts anymore, do we? It's like no. everyone – and that's, I suppose, my one uh, complaint about the democratisation of the media and social media. Now anyone with broadband – feels that they have an opinion that's as legitimate as someone who's got three PhDs in a particular subject. Yeah, exactly. And so that, you know, again, is a um, is a gigantic problem. I wish I knew the answer to get well, back. If you knew the answer, this. it wouldn't be a very good ending for, for Yeah, well, that's book, the thing. You can't, really write, you can't really write a book about the value of questioning and scepticism and doubt and then go, and I've got all the answers. Speaking of all the answers, you talk about the fact that doubt is not the same as, as false balance. Yeah, that's right. For example, to use the inauguration example again, you know, Mr. Trump says that it was the best intended inauguration in history. However, you know, the Washington Police Department says that's not the case. There is a demonstrable um, fact that you can go and find. You know, as I said, you can get a photo, you can get a head count, whatever you want to do. So it's false balance to say Mr. Trump says this and somebody else says that because there is actually factual, you know, yeah. material. So I think that it's legitimate to then say Mr. Trump says this, that is incorrect. The facts show, you know, blah, blah, blah. Climate change is another area where I think you can say that because the reality is there are, um, you know, doubts. And, of course, there are questions around climate change and the extent of climate change, um, the role of man-made activity in climate change and the extent of that. What are the best policy responses to that? There's tonnes of legitimate questions you can have around the policy responses to climate change. What I think it's hard to argue with is that the climate is changing. Like, we have now the overwhelming weight of the scientific community accepts that's happening. The Chinese government accepts that's happening. The British government accepts that's happening. BHP accepts that's happening. Like every credible body across so mm. many different, you know, such diverse bodies except it's happening. I think therefore that you reach a tipping point where you can say, okay, for the basis of, of any discussion, that needs to be accepted as fact now. If you have 99% of scientists who agree that climate change is happening and you have 1% who don't, it's false balance to give that 1% the same amount of time. As and that's others. something that a lot of journalists have taken a while to understand. I remember I've been fighting this battle around immunisations for a long time where people will int will interview a doctor or the head of the AMA and then they'll interview Meryl Dory who used to be the head of the Anti-Vax Association. Mm. That is false equivalency. It is, yeah, it is. And yet somehow it's really hard because you're right. People say, 
well, that's your opinion. I'm going to find some alternative facts, which is often a video I saw on YouTube yeah. that tells me different to what my doctor and every scientist in the World Health Organization has, has told me. How do you fight against that? I mean, I guess um, how I fight that is by what I do in my job where I'm trying to present people with facts and saying, but hang on, you know, have you thought about it like this? Where I feel like I'm in a bit of a crisis is because I think, well, you know, I've been doing that for 25 years and the value and the currency of that seems to be less and less and less all the time. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either, but I think, you know, the vaccination one is a classic example of how people, you know, you start from a position and then you Mm. look for facts to back it. So say with the anti-vaxxers, and it's a completely understandable position. We all would have it. You have a beautiful little baby. Maybe you're somebody who doesn't like chemicals and unnatural things or whatever. And so you feel like, oh, they're going to inject, they're going to hurt my baby by injecting Mm. something into it. And, you know, you can legitimately have a bad reaction to vaccinations. I'm not talking about autism. Mm. I'm talking just about there's a small percentage of babies that can have a bad reaction. You're probably motivated from a position of just discomfort about, I don't want to have to give my baby a needle, give it whatever. And so therefore to reach for something that legitimises that fear and says, well, I don't have to Mm. because actually, you know, I found this crackpot study that says X, Y, Z. We all look for ways, I think, to legitimise our own behaviour and ways of thinking. And maybe in the case of anti-vaxxers, you know, that's where they're coming from as well. You talk about the other downside of doubt is that it can breed a lack of all-consuming passion. Yes. Would you say that? You you talk about your own lack of all-consuming yeah, passion. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty blase about most things. I, I see it as you're very kind of, you're very even and calm, whereas I'm highly excitable <laughs> and that's exhausting. You're also very creative, which I think uses a lot of um, energy and, and requires passion, I think, as well. Like when I, when I sort of sit back and I think, well, what in my life or what issues or whatever do I feel really, really strongly about? Yeah. There's not that many. Musicals. You know? <laughs> show tunes. Everyone should like show tunes. Bloody hell, show tunes. Because then you think, okay, well, let's say like I feel strongly that every child should be entitled to a top quality free education. But then what do I actually do about that? Like am I out there – Raising money for that? Am I out there on the streets? For Obviously, that? that's you know, so logical and practical. You can just feel strongly about it and have no answers. <laughs> I can just tweet like hashtag, yeah. hashtag education for all. That's how I Makes live my difference. life. I'm incredibly passionate. I've got no answers, but I just have all the feelings. <laughs> Thank you so much. Do you think it's going to be okay? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know where it's all going. I, 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 Maybe in 10 years' time, I will be like Andrew Bolks. I will have accepted to be employable. I'm going to have to have some strident opinions out there. I don't know. I, I think it'll be all right. I just I hope it's going to be all right. But I don't know. Until then, keep asking the questions. I will. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay. You can buy On Doubt by Lee Sales, and my goodness, I recommend that you do, at apple.co forward slash Mamma Mia. A shout out to everyone who has supported us on this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Leave us a kind review on iTunes, please. Tell someone who is obsessed about Trump. Send them this podcast. Caring is sharing. If you know someone in America, send it to them. If you know someone here... Um, who talks to you about Trump because we've all got our little network of Trump obsessives. And if you missed our uh, episode from earlier in the week with Chaz Lichardello, talk about it, uh, American political obsessive. He and I met over Twitter back in the early days when Twitter was a lovely place. And he was obsessed about American politics back then. This was like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, way before Hillary or Trump or anything. He and I spoke this week about the indictments. Um, So scroll back in your feed if you want to listen to that. He's just a fountain of knowledge. And he told me some stuff about the election that was the first 
glimmer of silver lining that I have ever heard about Hillary not being elected president. And he made me look at it in a, in a bit of a different way. If you want to call us on the pod phone to express some doubts about some of the things I've been saying or about anything really, call us on 02 or express your doubts at podcast at mamamia.com.au. That email is podcast at mamamia.com.au. This show is produced by Luca Levine, who has many doubts. <clears throat> he's full of doubts. I doubt whether he's even listening to me right now. He's, I'm looking at him and he's actually just typing something on his phone. Um, he works at the Mamma Mia Podcast Network. He's written down for me to read here. The director of podcasts is Rachel Corbett. The head of content is Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman on behalf of my usual co-host, Amelia Lester, who is going to be back in a couple of weeks. I think it's going to be okay, but I doubt it.